It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. John Edward Swindler never learned to read or write and instead became a bona fide criminal at the age of 15. His crimes quickly advanced from car theft to arson. At 300 pounds with long fuzzy red hair and pimply skin, his appearance was so frightening that he intimidated fellow inmates into performing crimes from their jail cells. He sodomized other convicts who dared not refuse him. He was moved in and out of solitary confinement in an attempt to break him of his violent ways. It failed. Released from prison because he was uncontrollable, he began a multi-state crime spree that culminated in the rape and murder of three young people and the shocking assault on a Fort Smith, Arkansas policeman named Randy Bassnett. In a matter of days, Swindler's lust for death grew into an unforgettable killing spree. On September 24, 1976, two men, John Edward Swindler, a force for evil, and Officer Randy Bassnett, laying his life on the line for good, came together. The result altered their lives and the lives of many others. This is their story. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Killing Spree, a true story of a string of brutal murders, rapes, and the cop who tried to stop it. With my special guest, author Anita Paddock. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for this interview, Anita Paddock. Hello. Thank you so much for this interview. You're very welcome. Right away in this book, you take us to September 24th, 1976, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and you take us to a house in Barling, a little town outside of Fort Smith, and the home of Fort Smith police officer, 30-year-old Randy Bassnett, his wife Cindy, and their three children. 
Tell us, as you do in the book, about Randy and Cindy and their extended families and their lives at that time in September 1976. Randy Bassnett and his wife, Cindy, were happy. They were a very happy couple. They had a, a new baby, and this new baby was just a delight to Randy. He could not believe how much he loved that baby, and as well as the other children in the family who were four and six. Cindy, his wife, was a daughter of a policeman, so she very well knew what a wife of a policeman needed to do because she was actually the only child, and her mother, she and her mother were often left alone while her father was out doing his detective work. Anyway, Cindy was a real cute little girl. Nobody's treaded on Cindy. She adored her mother and father, and Randy's parents were really kind to her, and she loved them as well. And on this particular day of September 24th, she had taken her children and gone out to visit with Randy's parents because they had bought a new swing set for the older children and Mr. Bassnett had put it up. And so she was, Cindy was in the kitchen with Peggy Bassnett. They were just visiting and having a good time. And then while they were in the kitchen visiting on the two-way radio, they heard that, that there had been a shooting in the north side of town. And so they both kind of perked up then because they knew that Randy uh, patrolled that part of town. They all, both of them knew what the dangers were of being a policeman and what, what the heartache could be for a policeman's family if something would go wrong. Now then, I'm going to take you back to a week earlier when John Edward Swindler got off the bus at a bus station in Columbia, South Carolina. He that's where he was from and he had he had been involved with a lot of really petty crimes and, and arson and, and he was he was a really a bad guy. He had been in he had been in Leavenworth and in Leavenworth he was such a he was in and out of solitary and nothing that the warden or anybody else at that prison could do to stop him from uh, intimidating, sodomizing other prisoners. So they just let him out and sent him home, gave him $40 and a bus ticket to South Carolina. When he got off the bus, he was met by his brother. The brother wanted to help him, wanted to get him, find him a job, wanted to find him a place to live. But John Edward Swindler was not interested in that. He immediately, as soon as his brother left, he immediately started walking and kidnapped a man who was driving a car. He had stopped at a stoplight and John Edward Swindler just jumped in the car before this guy knew what had happened. And he stole that car and drove it until it ran out of gas. And then he left it. Then he went to a, he walked to this kind of hamburger place, a drive-in hamburger place. And there in a, in her father's car sat Dottie and Greg, and they were sweethearts in high school. They had just graduated from high school and she was driving her daddy's car and they were getting a hamburger. 
And he he just there again opened the door. He just walked up to him, opened the door, and she was behind the wheel because she had driven him there, of course, in her daddy's car. And and he stuck a pistol in Greg's side and told her to drive to this nearest. It was like a place you could go fit go fishing. It was a like a park. And she knew where it was. And so they headed off to that park. And all the time she was driving, she was trying to go fast that a police maybe would stop her for speeding. But that didn't happen. Right. She was very worried about what her father was going to say because he had told her just to drive this car to work and back. Her parents, when she didn't return home in the car, they grew concerned and they they called Greg's parents and Greg's parents said, well, he's not home either. Uh, so they, they knew something bad had happened. So they called the police. The police ended up searching around and they found Greg and Dottie's bodies. Greg had was all his clothes had been, he was naked and he was lying on top of a fallen down the trunk of a tree. She was tied up to a tree and the car was stolen and Greg Greg had been shot. He was dead and she too had been shot. So two days after he got out of Leavenworth, he had killed this really nice young couple, Greg and Dottie. Anita, tell us what happens a couple days later. Swindler goes to a bar and sees an ex-con and that ex-con tells him that the cops are looking for him for a murder of a young couple. So what is his reaction and what does he do as a consequence? Well, he can't believe that already they're looking for him. He doesn't, he's amazed about that, but he realizes he got to get out of town. And so he has to look for a, another car in which he can leave. And so he, he walks around in this neighborhood until he finds a house that appears he can tell that the house is occupied by some elderly people. So he he knocks on the door and a lady comes to the door and he pushes her in and then he steals their money. She has a husband who comes downstairs and he he steals their money. He steals their car and the man has a gun cabinet and he looks in that gun cabinet and he sees a real pretty rifle that has a brand new scope that goes with it that's already in a box and he and a couple of shotguns. So he steals those guns and puts them in the back of their car along with the money he stole from them. And off he goes. He wants to go to Kansas City because he, there's some people who live in Kansas City who wronged him in when he was in Leavenworth. So off he goes. And he gets as far as Georgia when he hears on the car radio that a Georgia policeman has has spotted this car. So he hides behind a a filling station that has a great big, like a sign that that he could hide the car behind. And he stays there trying to decide what to do. He doesn't know if he continue on west or go back east where he knows the area better. He's at a real disadvantage because he can't read or write. But he just, he goes into, when it gets dawn, he goes into this all night, 24 hour filling station and he robs this guy who works there. And then he hides him in, 
he locks him into a closet and tells him not to try to get out. But the guy does try to get out and he hears him trying to get out. And so Swindler takes a gun and shoots this guy and then leaves him in there, leaves him for dead. The fellow, the attendant who was shot, eventually he lives, but he has to be in the hospital for many, many weeks. He's really, his back is, he's really, really damaged by this shotgun. Anyway, in the people, there's a a couple parked in a car in front of the service station and they see what's going on. It's a mother and her son. And then they see the man leave. And then they call the police and they tell them about the man shooting somebody in the filling station and that he was that he was driving a, a gold Plymouth Dodger. So off he goes and he decides that he will go west and he picks up a hitchhiker. He doesn't try to rob the hitchhiker because he knows that he's probably poor or he wouldn't be hitchhiking. But he asks the hitchhiker if he has a bath that he could draw on it and tell him how to get to how, how to get to Kansas City. And so the guy does. He has a map and he draws and he tells him, you keep on this 40, Highway 40. And then when you get to Alma, Arkansas, you turn right and go go left or, or you turn right and go north on Highway 71 and that'll get you to Kansas City. So he heads that way for Alma and he's driving real fast and, and, and he's drinking along the way and he passes by Alma and heads on, heads on west. And when he gets, when he gets to uh, a filling station that's just across, after he's crossed the Arkansas River, he knows that he's gone too far. And he stops at the very first filling station that he can, and that's on Kelly Highway. And Kelly Highway is a real busy street. And on Kelly Highway, across the street from this filling station and convenience store, is the Arkansas State Patrol office, a real big, fancy, nice office. And coming to that office is a policeman named Chuck Lambert. And he has seen this. He has seen Swindler on the highway and already thinks, ooh, that, that guy looks weird. Uh, and he's driving this South Carolina license plate, so he's far from home. And when he gets, and he, so he pulls off and goes into the state patrol office and gets the business that he's supposed to be getting. He's an undercover narcotics inspector. He looks out the window and sees that that same car that he noticed on the road is parked at that filling station. So he keeps, doesn't, goes on about his business, but keeps looking out and seeing that that car is still there. You set the stage in the book for Randy. Randy Bassnett liked to stop at this gas station to have a coffee and Coke with the attendant there, which was named Carl Tinder. He also worked at, he also worked at Edward's funeral home as well. And they were friends for a long time. And at this time that Randy often frequented this gas station and the convenience store in walked in this, as you say, this big, huge 300 pound smelly guy that was looking for directions, said he couldn't read and had a map and wanted assistance. Take us to the scene where Carl and Randy Bassnett encounter John Swindler. Well, 
They see John Swindler, and when he tells them that he can't read or write, they're thinking, oh, my, I'm in sort of a quandary how to explain to someone who can't read or write. But they begin showing him on that map that he brings in how to get to Alma. Well, Randy Bastet is remembering the briefing that he had earlier in the day where there was an all-points bulletin sent out about Swindler. And by this time, they knew that he what he was driving because the elderly couple had said, he's driving our car and it's a gold Plymouth Dodger and the license plate is South Carolina license plate. And then describes the man and the man is, the man's description fits the description of this guy who's in the, is asking for directions, and Randy Bassett looks out and sees this car that's parked right outside the door to the convenience store. So he he says, well, guys, I've got to get back to work. And so he leaves Mr. Tinder there in the office with this swindler, and he goes, Randy Bassett goes to his car, gets his notebook, calls in to the his office and tells him that he's seen this guy and where he is and to send backup. And then Randy, I suppose, was afraid that maybe this guy was going to get in the car and take off. And so he walks over to the fella swindler who's working under the hood of his car. And he asks him if he has any identification. And the fella says, let me put Swindler says, let me put the trunk, the car hood down and I'll get it out of my car. So Randy sort of stays there fairly close to the car and the Swindler gets in. He reaches over as if he were getting his wallet to show his driver's license. But instead, he reaches in and gets a revolver and he swings around and hits and uses the gun and shoots Randy twice in the stomach at close range. And when Randy Bassett is falling down after being mortally hit, he is able to get his gun out of the holster and fire off six shots into that car. And one of the shots hits Swindler in the left thigh. And then Swindler takes off. He he takes off and heads down a road that is a dead-end road. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Chuck Lambert looks out the window and he witnesses all this shooting. And he grabs a revolver and he runs outside. And when Swindler is passing by, he shoots at that car, but he doesn't hit the car. But he sees the direction in which the car is is escaping to. And about that time, Bob Ross, who is a policeman and Randy's really good friend, he shows up and he sees Lambert and Lambert tells him what has happened. And he says, this Bob Ross says, get in the car with me. And so he does. And then Bob Ross's car stalls and he can't get it to start. So they go back where Randy Bassett's car is parked they get into it, and it stalls also. And so they're wondering, what the heck is going on here? But finally, finally, they get the car started. They take off and go down this dirt road that leads to the Arkansas River. And that is, that's the direction in which Swindler was going. He didn't know where he was going. He just took off Ross and Lambert 
They go looking for them, but they're sort of afraid that there might be an ambush. But Swindler calls out, I give up. I don't want to be killed. And so they separate. By this time, more policemen show up. So they all separated and sneak over to where the voice is coming from on Swindler. They arrest him and find all the guns that he has. And those policemen are really, really angry at this swindler for killing one of their own. Sure. And so they take him, they take swindler to the hospital because he's been shot by, he's got this bullet in his thigh. And he's all dirty and awful looking because he's been on the run. And and so they take him, they take him to the same hospital where Randy Bassnett was taken and Randy died on the way. Mr. Tinder went out and, and stayed with Randy while he was lying on the concrete street. He stayed with him. Mr. Tinder says that he, he had worked at Edward's funeral home for a long time and he knew something about dead bodies and By the way, Randy's eyes looked, he was sure that he was already dead. But he stayed with him until an ambulance got there. And they took him to Sparks Hospital, where they also took Swindler. Mm -hmm. And the police were none too gentle with Swindler, as you can imagine. No. Meanwhile, you write that, meanwhile, Peggy Bassnett, as you, you were talking about earlier, was with Cindy and baby Amanda and had that police scanner on when they did hear that there were shots fired in the area that Randy was working in. Peggy told her to call the police station and find out what was going on. Of course, they couldn't. They said they couldn't say anything, but they would notify her. So they've been notified. Cindy has been notified. The family has been notified. But what you do write is that the grandfather sees it on television, unfortunately, that his his grandson has been mortally wounded in this altercation with John Swindler. So tell us what happens next. You talk about the funeral. You talk about so many things that happen as a result of this. Tell us what happens in regards to the investigation into other crimes by John Swindler. All right. They notify the Fort Smith Police Department, notifies the police department in South Carolina and tell them that they've caught this guy and that he's killed a police. And and then they start in on, on looking at this guy's record and they know that he's a bad guy and he's been, oh, he's just, he's just a horrible guy. They put him, somebody has to work, a doctor has to work on him. And the, the doctors actually make it, they, it was rumored and I think true that when the doctors were working on Swindler, they did not give any, didn't use any kind of painkiller because nobody, nobody likes somebody who kills a policeman. And right. Randy Bastet was a, he was a, he was a very likable guy. He was a native of Fort Smith. And so Cindy's husband, Cindy's father, Odell Davis and Randy Bastet were very, very good friends. They fished together. And her daddy had been a policeman, so so they had that in common. And he really took over and helped Cindy out more than anybody could. He went to the police station with her. He talked to doctors who were willing to give her a sedative because it was 
her local doctor heard about it and he called and said, I want you to take Cindy to the hospital and I want to the emergency room. I've already called and they're going to give her a sedative because they knew that she had to be just, you know, really inconsolable. So she stays at her mother and daddy's house. And while she's there, the police chaplain rings the doorbell and he comes and he's the one who really delivers the message that Brandy Bastet has been killed. And she she beats him on the chest and says, don't, don't, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. It's got to be a mistake. And her father soothes her and says, no, this is, this is the truth. And so eventually Cindy and this police chaplain become very, very good friends. He delivered the true message to her that her husband had been killed. And for some reason, she latched on to him because he had given her the truth. And so she's there, she's there, and her daddy is with her. Her mother is taking care of the children. And Mr. Cindy's father says, we want you to go lie down and, and try to rest. And while she's lying down and resting, the doorbell rings and Mr. Davis, her, da- her daddy, goes to the door and it's two FBI men who want to talk with Cindy. So he goes and Mr. Davis goes and wakes up his daughter and tells her that there's two FBI fellows who want to talk to her. So she comes into the living room. The FBI guys are extremely gentlemen and they stand up when she enters the room and they tell her that they're very sorry for what had happened. And then they tell her that the reason John Swindler was even out was because the warden at Leavenworth could not control him. And she freaks out over here and that. And she said, well, I hope that that warden is fired. And the FBI guys say, we think that should happen too. And eventually she does find out that that warden was fired. And that's how she found out from FBI guys, which I thought was very nice and kind of them to come to her house, her daddy's house, and tell her what had happened. You describe this very emotional scene that you recreate in the book. The funeral was so important and there were so many people that wanted to attend that they had to use the civic center. And so you described this event and and how emotional she was talking to her husband and the, the viewing. Tell us a little bit about the funeral and Cindy's reaction. All right. Cindy, Cindy picked out a casket along with the Randy's parents were with her and her daddy was with her. And they went to Edward's funeral home and they picked it out there. And his body was there at Edward's funeral home. And it was being guarded by policemen. And he had been, there had been an autopsy done in Fort Smith on Randy's body. And once that autopsy was completed, then he was dressed in his police uniform, the dress uniform, and was lay there in Edward's funeral home for a few days. And then they had to decide what to do about the funeral. And 
her dad used to send him. Everyone tells me that there's going to be so many people at this funeral that we want to, uh, we want, we'll want to have it at a great big place that can accommodate the people. And they think the civic center is better. And she said, no, hell no. I don't want it to be like an event. Like that's where they have plays and symphonies. But her daddy said, Cynthia. And she told me that when he called her Cynthia, that she knew that she better straighten up. So she agreed, and it was a great big funeral attended by many, many people. And when the the funeral was over, she left with her parents in the funeral car, and they got about a mile away, and then she said, stop the car. And she wanted to go back to the Civic Center, and she wanted to be alone with Randy in the casket. And so her daddy went with her and stood there while she talked to her daddy, to her husband. She was kneeling at the casket and she talked to him and told him that she loved him and she was going to get through this and honor him and the way that she did it. And so they did load his casket in the car, funeral car, and he was he was buried. And there was a picture in the paper of her leaning at his on his coffin at the at the gravesite. This is a little side aside to tell you. On Sunday, I was at a uh, book signing, and a man came up to me, and he had bought a book, and he wanted it signed. And he said, "He said I want to tell you it was my honor to sing Randy Bassnett's funeral." And he he got all emotional when he told me that, and so did I. But the funeral the funeral was lovely, and. The guest book was signed. One person who signed the guest book was Randy's fourth grade teacher, Mr. Witt. Well, wow. after that, they all had to, you know, try to get along and uh, try to uh, try to move on. And Cindy did and everybody did. But it was very, very difficult for her. By the time September turned into November and October and then to December and January, we had a real bad winter that day, that year. And Cindy stayed in Barling at their home and, and people would show up to help her get to the grocery store or get diapers or get baby food. And she was touched by all of that because the, had such a hard winter that the car, that it was difficult to drive. That was a, a remember, that was a winter that everybody can remember. It was bad. Let's use this as an opportunity, Anita, to stop to hear from our sponsor. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ritual knows that it's virtually impossible to get all your body's vitamin and nutrient requirements solely from the food we eat. And so Ritual has created a new multivitamin aimed at filling your body's nutrient gaps to support your overall health. What I and my wife Lisa appreciate the most about Ritual Multivitamins is the confidence we have in the exhaustive research Ritual has undertaken to create this multivitamin, a clinically backed multivitamin for women 18 plus with high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. With nine key nutrients in two capsules per day, their unique bed let in oil is even patented. Instead of striving for perfect health, aim for supporting foundational health. Great news. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash murder to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. Now, the funeral is finished, but while awaiting this capital felony murder trial, John Swindler was doing something and terrorizing Cindy from behind bars. Can you explain? John Swindler, he was able to just intimidate everybody who was in that Sebastian County cell. He threatened them. He could get them to do anything because he was so big. He was so intimidating. And that's the way he had lived his life. And so there was a man there who was a prisoner who had a girlfriend who worked the switchboard at the Sebastian County Jail. And she, and they had her notice in this recording to Cindy's phone periodically late at night that said, stay tuned for an important message. So she would be staying tuned for an important message. Of course, scared, so scared that something had happened to her mother and daddy. And so that went on. And then also Cindy would be driving and she would look behind her and she'd see these menacing looking people in a car following her very closely. So she knew, she knew that, that it was Swindler who was doing that. Then Swindler's cronies started calling Mr. Tender at his house. And Mr. Tender, if you remember, was the man who worked at the filling station and was visiting with Randy when all this happened. And so Mr. Tender started getting these phone calls that said, you're a dead man if you testify. And so he told the police about it and they those calls continued. And so the police decided that they would send somebody out to stay at the Tender's home to protect them. And so they would spend the night there. Mr. and Miss Tender, her her name was Ruth. And Ruth, Ruth and Mr. Tender would go to their bedroom and she would make a big pot of coffee for the men and go to Von Houghton's Bakery, which was a delicious bakery in Fort Smith and get all these wonderful pastries for the men to eat with their coffee. And that went on for two or three weeks. And then... One night, tenders were in bed, sound asleep, and the detectives, they detected that somebody was out in the backyard who shouldn't have been there at one o'clock in the morning. They went into the, the bedroom of the tenders and they went in and they said, wake up, somebody is in the backyard. 
don't turn on the light. Well, imagine how frightening that would be. Well, they got yes. up, Mr. and Miss Tender got up, and they brought them into the living room to sit with them. And the next day, the police and the prosecutors, everybody decided that they needed to put the tenders in a safe place. And so they chose this motel that was on 10th and B, and they put the tenders in a safe place. Meanwhile, living next door to the tenders was Major Rivaldo with the Fort Smith Police Department and his three children and wife, and they too received threatening phone calls. And so Mrs. Mrs. Rivaldo took the three children to stay with the a family friend of theirs, and police moved into the Rivaldo's house, and they looked out the window and were watching the Rivaldo house as well as the Tender house. It was a frightening time for those people, the Rivaldos, and certainly for the Tenders. And so the Tenders, then Mrs. Tender, who worked at this company in Fort Smith, she started getting phone calls. She worked in the office and she started getting phone calls. And the phone calls would say, your husband's a dead man. You're going to be dead too. Just frightening things. And so she she called Major Rivaldo, who lived next door to her, before she even called her husband. And so Mr. Rivaldo went to her place of work and took her back to the motel. And from then on, they took her to work and brought her home from work. It was a horrible thing for the tenders to have to do. Miss Tender really never spoke about it to anybody for years afterwards. You take us to February 25th. 1977, finally, the felony murder death penalty trial. You've uh, said that John Swindler has cleaned up his appearance and takes the witness stand in his own defense. What does he have to say in terms of his defense? And how does he try to explain this claim of self-defense? He explains that Randy Bassnett, that he heard Randy Bassnett click on his pistol and that when he heard that pistol, click that he knew that he was fixing to be shot. And so in order to not be shot, he got his revolver and shot Randy Bassnett twice in the stomach. And he, he, so he claimed self-defense, which of course was ridiculous. It was, and it was proven that it was not when Chuck Lambert testified that he had been watching across the street and he heard first two shots. And then after two shots were fired, he heard six more fired. And so that meant, even though Chuck Lambert didn't say, didn't testify, but he let the judge and the jury draw their conclusion that he didn't know who fired the two shots, but he knew that Randy was hit with two shots and that Randy had fired back at the car with six shots. And so that blew away his defense. When he, when he tried that defense, he's, he claimed that he had been drinking and he claimed that, uh, that he, the police always were after him and, and guns had been a part of his life, just like wearing a piece of clothes. And he claimed that, he claimed that his mother had died school Sunday school and that she had led the choir and he sometimes sang in the choir also he just told a whole bunch of lies to his attorney 
who was questioning him and trying to make him look like he was a real good guy, which he was not. Wow. You take us to February 25th, 1977. Finally, the felony murder death penalty case of John Swindler occurs and he's cleaned up his appearance and he takes the witness stand in his own defense. What did he have to say in terms of his claim of the self-defense? And how does Charles Lambert and his testimony refute that claim? That was his defense of self-defense, which, you know, did not add up. The jury heard Chuck Lambert's testimony and they believed him. They did not believe Swindler. And so Swindler was found guilty and his sentence was, he was found guilty and he was given the death sentence. And so he left the Sebastian County Jail and was issued down to Cummins Prison in Grady, Arkansas, to await his sentence to be carried out. In the meantime, this was during the time when there was a whole lot of discussion all over the place and all over the United States about capital punishment. And so it was ruled that it was the Supreme Court ruled that it was against the Constitution to have capital punishment. And so that was nobody in those days received the capital punishment. And so he was sent back to Fort Smith and he was told that he would have another trial in a town that he had not been tried in before, Waldron, Arkansas, which was just a little farming community not far from Fort Smith. And he had another trial there and that jury found him guilty and found him that he should get the death penalty. By that time, by that time, he had the death penalty had had been settled that you could have the death penalty. I'm not using the exact wording as the courts would have said, but that was the truth right. of the story. So he was once again, once again, found guilty and they wanted him to be executed. In the meantime, while he was waiting for that trial to happen, he also was held in, he was held in the Sebastian County Jail. And he discovered that there was a man who worked there who was originally from Florida. And he asked this guy if he could possibly find a newspaper from Florida down in the Keys is where this guy lived and where he wanted the newspaper to be from. And this guy, the, Mr. Acosta, the jailer said, well, why do you want that? And he said, well, Swindler said, well, I killed somebody down there and I left a body there and I'd like to read about it. So, of course, Mr. Acosta told the sheriff about his conversation. And so the sheriff notified all the sheriffs down in Florida about what had happened. And they sent Swindler's fingerprints down to them and they matched those fingerprints to some fingerprints that were found on a cereal box that was under the bed where Jeff McNerney lay dead with his head smashed in by a sledgehammer. Yes, he gave graphic details of tying him up to the metal bed frame and then torturing and raping this boy for days. Days on end, yes. when When they found this boy, he was already, his body was already decomposing, but they found him with his both arms and one leg tied up against this metal frame beds. And then, of course, he was naked. They could tell that he had been sodomized many times. And then they found that he had been hit in the head with a sledgehammer. What's more horrifying 
than all of that is that John Swindler was at a halfway house set for parole. He had snuck away from this halfway house, committed this incredible murder and torture and rape of this person for days, made up some excuse, you said, got away from anyone connecting him whatsoever while he was on parole to this murder. And so for the parents, they were hearing this for the very first time, the details of what had happened to their son, Jeffrey McNeary. Let's talk about, meanwhile, John Swindler is awaiting execution. And so he gains comfort, you write, from a Monsignor O'Donnell, which Swindler had met 13 years earlier, when you write that he had worshipped Satan rather than Jesus. Now he wanted forgiveness, and these priests and other Catholics campaigned that his life be, be saved. He became Swindler's champion. Swindler learned how to read and write, and he taught prisoners how to read and write. He lost weight, he cut his hair, he spruced up, but the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton then, he was not in favor of commuting his sentence, and so he was executed. He was executed in a brand new electric chair that Arkansas had built, and they surmised that he wanted that he thought that would be really newsworthy, that he was executed in the first first one in this new electric chair. Right. You write that a journalist named Linda Subolt witnessed Swindler's execution, and you write that Cindy had planned to go, but at the last minute changed her mind. But she had communicated with Cindy, this Subolt, and I guess conveyed what had happened. And, and you write that it, it had affected this journalist quite a bit to see this execution as well. Linda Siebold was a, she wrote for the newspaper in Fort Smith and she was, she was a newspaper writer that everybody wanted to read anything she wrote. She was a, she was a really asset to our community and she had interviewed Cindy many times. And so consequently she and Cindy had become good friends and Cindy did plan to come to the execution. And then, and then she just decided that she wasn't going to, which is probably smart because Lin, Linda Siebold attended the execution and she wrote about it in the newspaper. And it was in my book, I've got that in there, what happened and how it came down. And uh, it was a horrible thing. I'm glad Cindy didn't go and see it. Linda was very sorry that she had gone to see it, but she did. And she she called after it was over. She called Cindy, who was staying at her uncle's house in Little Rock, because she and the uncle had planned to go to the the uh, execution. So she was still at the at her uncle's house, and she invited to Cindy and her photographer to spend the night there with them, and then drive on back to. Fort Smith, which is about three hours away. And so she did. And, and she and Cindy talked and Cindy really bared her soul to Linda about various things. And Linda wrote, ended up writing a really nice article about the marriage of Cindy's marriage to uh, Randy Bassnett and how, how he was eulogized by many groups in Fort Smith after his death. And and it was a, a lovely tribute that she wrote. You write that, that we didn't talk about it, but Cindy's idea and her parents wanted to move to this place that was a sort of a touristy place, this 10-killer lake about 60 miles from Fort Smith. Cindy, without Randy, of course, and the, and the children moved with her parents 
and you described this as a paradise, and I and I'm sure it contributed to some sort of healing to a certain extent in this atmosphere. But you write that once Cindy's father uh, died, that her and her mother moved back to Fort Smith. Yes, and they rented an apartment in Fort Smith, and Cindy still lives in that apartment. Well, it's a duplex, a real cute duplex. I've been over there several times. Anyway, she still lives in that same duplex. She never remarried. Her daughter, Amanda, Amanda, who was just the baby when her daddy died, Amanda, when Amanda was 30 years old, she developed some very bad heart condition and she died. And Cindy always consoled herself that, that she was up in heaven fishing with her daddy. And, and I suppose her granddaddy at Lake Tenkiller, the grandfather loved to fish. Tenkiller was a, is a beautiful spot. It's, it was made by damming up the Illinois River. It's in Oklahoma. It's a beautiful spot. There's all sorts of camping sites there. People from Fort Smith go fishing and it's water skiing there and also from Oklahoma. It's a, it's a lovely place. And Cindy told me that she could imagine hearing Randy when a storm would come up. She said she could imagine hearing Randy say, all right, everybody inside. And, and she said it became sort of a comfort to her to look out and see men fishing on the lake and to look out and see couples walking, walking down by the lake. It just, she felt close to Randy. And, and so that's the way she ended up. Her children all went to Tahlequah. That was the nearest town. And her two older children graduated from Tahlequah. The youngest girl graduated from Fort Smith High School, Southside High School. It was a very sad story for me to write because that family of Cindy's were so, they were a wonderful family in every in every way. And then they were torn up completely by this John Edward Swindler. Everybody's family of the victims were grieved for their children. I'm sure never, ever got over it. And Swindler was just, he was just an evil, evil guy. Absolutely. When I was writing the book, often I was crying while I was doing it. And that may sound kind of, I don't know, but it's true. No, I did. Anita, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about your extraordinary book, The Killing Spree, a true story of a string of brutal murders, rapes, and the cop who tried to stop it. Thank you so much, Anita Paddock, The Killing Spree. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A true story of a string of brutal murders, rapes, and the cop who tried to stop it. Thank you so much, Anita Paddock, for this interview. And you have a great evening. All right. Thank you, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.